This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Ask the Expert with Steph. Hi, everyone. I'm your Ask the Expert host, Steph Storer, and I'm excited to introduce you all to today's guest, the fabulous, the brilliant historian, Dr. Nikki Clark. Thanks for joining us, Nikki. Thank you for having me. So today you're here to chat with us about women in Tudor times. That seems like kind of a general enough topic that we could... We could honestly spend hours chatting about it, but we'll do our best over here to keep things reasonable. The first thing I'd love to ask you is why women? Like what drew you to research this one segment of the Tudor population? Well, that's a really good question. Um, for me, I think it actually goes back to my teenage years in a really cliched, unoriginal kind of way. But I spent a lot of time reading books about Tudor history going, okay, but where are all the girls? And then when I got to university, I was studying English and history, and I was still asking that question. And so then I started to write essays about them. And I was increasingly drawn to reading about women to trying to write about women. Um, And then eventually, I got into a PhD. And um, yeah, started to write about elite women at this time and answer the, the questions that I'd had for so many years. Is it harder to find information as you're researching? Yes, quite a lot harder, yes. Um, and that's for several reasons, partly because women were secondary in society at that time. Um, and so there's simply less material preserved about them or written by them. And because of that that secondary view of women meant that fewer women learned read and write, fewer women needed those skills. So a lot of the sources that we've got were written by men and for men. So that just means that you're always looking through a lens, a male lens, onto women at this time. So yeah, it's difficult for that reason. And it's also difficult for reasons of the law at that time as well. So if you were a married woman, the eyes of the law did not exist because when you got married, you came under coverture. And that comes from the French word couverte, which means covered. And what it meant that was your legal identity did not exist anymore. You became subsumed into your husband's legal identity. In law, you existed only as his possession. That meant you couldn't do a lot of things that might mean that you would otherwise leave 
a nice, neat legal record for us. So married women didn't do things like make wills. They didn't run lawsuits in their own names. They usually didn't keep accounts in their own names because the money belongs to the husband. And that just means that when you're trying to search for women in an archive, they're a lot harder to find. And you sort of have to look backwards. You need to look through the men in order to find the women around them. And now everything that you just said spans across all social statuses, correct? Like you are still the property of your husband, regardless of whether or not you have a lot of money or high standing. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. The general sense of men being superior and women being inferior is the same across all social scales. Um, and really that's, that's kind of predicated on two major things. There's a medical view and a religious view of women. So medically speaking, society tended to follow ancient models of understanding the human body, uh, like the humoral system outlined by ancient Greek philosopher Galen, um, which meant that uh, he laid out that the body was made up of four humors, cold, wet, dry, and hot, that were allied to four kinds of disgusting bodily fluids. And for the body to be healthy, the humors needed to be balanced. But men and women balanced differently. So women were thought to be cold and wet, and men hot and dry. So that means men go to war and have sex a lot and are superior, and women are weaker and they cry a lot. Um, and then religiously, the view of women followed the Bible, mainly the figure of Eve. So women were temptresses, they were not to be trusted, and again, they were weaker and more likely to succumb to temptation. Um, and it's not that everyone on the street would have like rattled that off if you'd asked them, but it's those views that underlies general societal understandings of men and women and gender relations, and that's what underpins those things like the law of coverture. So yeah, it is the same across all social statuses. Status does also play a bit of a role. So if you're talking about elite women, they are subordinate to elite men. But if you are a male servant of an aristocratic woman, it's not likely that you'd be stupid enough to try and tell her what to do. So social status does play into gender relations a little bit. Within the home, were was this concept um, portrayed in such a way between, you know, in within relationships. So were the men or the husbands always kind of talking down to women or did they just, they knew that this is what it was like kind of in the background. She's my property. That's how it is. But it's still my wife and we run the household together and she does her thing and I do my thing. You know, what was, what was the husband treating his wife like during, during this time? And actually furthermore, the sons to their mothers or to the sisters? Sure. Uh, the, yeah, that's the kind of question that it's very difficult to put a kind of generic answer to because so much of that does depend on individuals. I have no doubt that there were men who saw all women as inferior and talked down to them, whether or not it's your wife. But there were also men who saw marriage as more of a partnership. And it did work better that way. It was a kind of a teamwork exercise. Um, where they complement one another with the things that they do and the strengths that they have. Um, and there were marriages that were that were great, you know, and, and people grieved when their spouse died. And so I don't think that there would have been a general atmosphere of being talked down to in those kind of situations. Um, but it may be things like a wife is not expected to argue outright with her husband and particularly not in public. So to a modern eye, it might still seem that she's being treated 
as inferior because she's not speaking up in the way that we might do today. Um, but again, it's so variable that it's quite hard to be to be specific about. Let's talk a little bit about education. You had mentioned earlier that obviously a lot of the things that you researched were written by men or written for men because women didn't necessarily get the same education. What what could they receive? People in general tended to be educated to fit them for the life that they were going to lead as adults. And that's the case for men as well as women. Um, and what that generally meant that was for women, even elite women, they're getting a less what we might think of as scholarly education than a man would get. So men would be taught Greek and Latin, uh, public speaking, rhetoric or philosophy. Um, women are generally not so they are taught the basic things at an early age, usually from their mothers. So things like early religious instruction, which might be learning the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments. If they are elite, they probably are taught to read. They might not be further down the social scale. All women would know how to sew. Um, and as a girl got older, she'd probably shadow her mother and learn household management and housewifery in that way. And again, if she's elite, it's a little bit more like managing a huge hotel or something like that, estate management. Um, and a few girls, the elite ones again, might end up at the royal court for, for basically the same purpose, like a finishing school, maids of honour in service with the queen. And that's to gain social polish and contacts and things like that. I love your your hotel um, analogy. I think that's a, that's a great way uh, to put it into perspective for people. So kind of jumping, piggybacking off of that, how would they support their families when they're running this kind of business or these these homes or, you know, like you said, running a big hotel or something like that? How would they support their families in that way if their husbands were away? Because a lot of times a husband would be away in battle or if he was if they were elite, they'd be at court. How did the women do all of the duties if the husbands weren't there? essentially by stepping into his shoes, more or less. So the money still belongs to the husband, but the wife temporarily gains the ability uh, to, I guess, authorize spending it. Um, so nominally, they become the head of the household and the estate. And that means that the woman is the one checking and signing off the accounts and making decisions like, do we cut down that timber or not? Do we kill those chickens or not? Um, and if it's a time of war, for instance, if it's the Wars of the Roses, civil war, she would also be nominally responsible for defending the place if it's necessary to do that. And that doesn't mean that she's kind of physically doing all the same things that her husband might do, but it means that she's the final port of call. A lot of managing a large household, the reason I say it's like a hotel is because a lot of it is just, is kind of delegation. It's managing other people. And that's the role that you'd be stepping into when your husband is away. And I would imagine that that could sometimes be a little bit tricky because as a woman, you're then essentially ordering a lot of men around. And I'm sure there were men who didn't take that very well. But generally, an aristocratic woman at the head of a household stepping into her husband's shoes should be obeyed in the same way that he should be. But if she's lucky, her state officials, the men, are also very good, know their jobs very well. And all she really has to do is make sure that she's keeping an eye on them. Were there any jobs that a woman could have that she could make her own money? And this goes for a married woman or a single woman. What could she do to have her own money? 
if anything? Um, she could do, she might do, but it was tricky. Um, this is one of those things that in some ways is easier for non-elite women. Elite women do not make money. Uh, the only way an elite woman might have her own money is if she's been married before and then been widowed. And then in her second marriage, she might hold on to control of the estates uh, that are supporting her as a widow from her first marriage. Officially and legally, that now belongs to her husband. But in practice, often she kept control. So I suppose that would be the way to do it as an elite woman. Um, a little lower down the social scale, you could be a midwife. There's a job a woman does and she does it by herself. Um, something else you could do is work as a silk woman. Those are women who imported and made and sold all the little extras for dressmaking. So things like fringe and braid and thread that's that's silk or, or got gold in it. And that's a very female dominated trade. And while they don't have a guild like a lot of other trades did, they often bonded together and acted collectively. Um, and if you are a silk woman of London, perhaps, if you're really lucky, you might get to supply the queen with your wares. And sometimes they have extra roles on top. So one of Anne Boleyn's silk women in London was a means of delivery of imported books on questionable religious subjects. So somebody sent them to her silk woman who would then pass them on to the queen. Another way that you could work as a single woman would be as a widow. In some cities, you're not only allowed to take on your husband's business and run it as your own, but you're legally obliged to as a widow, unless you can get someone else to run it for you. Uh, and something else you could do, usually not out of choice, but out of necessity, to work as a prostitute. Prostitutes were viewed as a necessary evil by the state, because if you don't have them, men might prey on respectable women, heaven forbid. Um, but the kind of women who did that work were viewed themselves as social pariahs. So in a lot of city ordinances, prostitutes weren't allowed within the city walls. They might have to wear clothing that would mark them out. So striped hoods often. So it is a means to make money, but it's not one that you won't have to choose. Did you say that they would have to wear a striped hood? And that, that would mark that they're... Sometimes, yeah. I've seen at least one set of ordinances where it said a striped hood. Well, that's very interesting. Um, and I, that actually just brings me to another question, not necessarily about prostitutes, but about the clothing that, uh, that women were um, expected to wear. So there's definitely obviously a difference between what would, would be considered appropriate for them to be wearing what they needed to wear versus what they wanted based on, you know, fashion or what they had money to buy. Um, but typically, during the Tudor era, what would a woman's outfit look like? Sure. Okay, so no matter who you are, it's got a lot of layers. Uh, and fashion is fashion, no matter who you are, I think. It just moves faster and is more expensive and detailed at the top of society. Uh, you're probably not wearing velvet as a peasant. Uh, and the royal court is the place where fashion arrives first in the country. Always, those women are nearly always on display. So it's important for them to be abreast of the latest fashions. Interestingly, English women were actually known as being dowdy in terms of fashion. Uh, and that's partly geographical. So women traveled less anyway. Uh, and that was even more the case in England because we're on an island on the edge of Europe. And that makes it quite hard for female fashion to spread. We know that royal women did exchange trends and patterns. And the movement of royal women for marriage is another way of introducing new fashion. Even so, 
Polish women just seem to be a little bit behind the rest of Europe. So what you would wear in England, getting dressed in the morning is not a swift process. For a lot of women, you would have needed help. So the first thing you put on linen underwear, which doesn't seem to be knickers. It's usually a linen smock or a shift, and that helps to soak up sweat and protect the nice fabrics that you put on top. And only the collars and cuffs of that you would see. So only they are embroidered. And that might have been with a style of embroidery called black work, which is that, that black on white line embroidery that was supposedly brought from Spain by Catherine of Aragon. For that, you'd wear a kind of bodice that was designed to flatten the chest and push your breasts up, creating a smooth silhouette rather than a curve. On top of that goes a kirtle, which is a dress with a tight-fitting bodice and skirt, um, and the sleeves are either attached separately or they're part of it. And then at court, you usually wear a gown on top of that, which means that the front triangular panel of the kirtle is the only bit you see. And that got more and more elaborately decorated over the course of Henry VIII's reign. And necklines usually are low and square and then V-shaped at the back. Um, necklines do shift over the course of the Tudor period. That kind of low square thing is, is still a thing for a long time. Sleeves are usually set the rest of the dress. So either you lace those on or you get them pinned on. So you've got this endless kind of mix and match vibe with different colours and different fabrics. And all of those things would have been lined with fur in the winter. Nobles often pay their skinners and their tailors to add and remove fur linings as the seasons change. So you might be cold, probably not as cold as you'd think. And you would also think that that low neckline would get really cold because England is really cold in the winter. But you could fill it in with something called a partlet, which was a bit of fabric that could be anything from a really fine lawn to a really thick velvet. Um, a woman might also have worn a stomacher, which was an extra piece of fabric pinned underneath or over the lacing on the front of the gown. You'd have hose or stockings, which are usually really finely woven wool held up with garters, and then you'd have some sort of flat-heeled slipper shoes, which could be made of any sort of fabric and might not be super durable either. Um, and then on your head, headgear gets complicated. So all across Europe, respectable women cover their hair. In England, um, headdresses go in and out of fashion possibly a little bit more quickly than gowns do. So Early on in Henry VIII's reign, the gable hood is what's fashionable. So first, you probably put your hair in a net, then some kind of close-fitting linen cap to protect the nice fabric of the hood from the hair's oils. Um, and then the hood goes on itself, and the gable hood is named because it has a pointed arch at the front like a gabled roof. And it's heavier and more unwieldy than hoods anywhere else in Europe, but actually it's worn in England throughout Henry's reign. So the, the hood structure is is wire or metal and then layers of fabric. Um, French hoods, which came in a little bit later, were smaller and rounder and set further back on the head so that you could see the hair at the front, which is usually combed flat and then parted in the middle. Um, yeah, so broadly speaking, those are the kinds of things that all women would wear. Whether all women at the bottom of the social scale would wear a hood, probably just wearing some kind of linen cap rather than an actual heavy hood. Um, but the kind of the different layers of garments, are, I think, broadly the same, no matter who you are. It's the fabric that will be different. At what age would they have to start covering their hair? 
Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm trying to think now of portraits I've seen. I mean, I think even girls covered their hair with something, even if it's just just kind of cloth or a cap. And she would definitely be covering it by the age of 12. And what then, what do you think is significant about the age of 12? Is that kind of because that's when they could be considered a woman? Yeah. So for women, the age of 12 is the age at which, by church law, you can marry. Marriage is governed by the church because it was a holy sacrament. And canon law, church law, laid down that girls could marry at 12 and boys at 14, which is roughly the ages of puberty, um, obviously with some give and take. And by the 16th century, that did still sometimes happen among elites, but it, it's getting a bit rarer. It's more likely that a marriage might be contracted at that age, but the couple wouldn't be allowed to cohabit until a bit later on. That's what happened, for instance, with Henry VIII's illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, and his wife, Mary Howard. They were contracted to marry quite early, but even by the time he died in 1536, at the age of, I want to say, 17, they still hadn't actually consummated the marriage yet. So there is a bit of a theory practice gap. I think various studies have shown that it was actually more normal for more normal people um, and women particularly, not to marry until they're in their 20s. So let's talk then a little bit more about marriages. Um, that's something that our, our listeners definitely asked a lot of questions about. Um, you definitely answered the piece about when it was appropriate for them to get married. But were all marriages kind of arranged by their families, by their fathers, things like that? Or was there ever a situation where a man and a woman could decide that they just loved each other and wanted to get married? Or is, was it just not based on that at the time? It's not usually based on that. It is usually an economic contract between the families of the bride and the groom. But there is a social status element here. So for the elites, it is definitely an economic contract. So the woman would bring a dowry with her. And by that point, it's most usually cash. But if she was an heiress, it could be land. And in return, the groom's family assigned her something called a jointure, which meant a parcel of land. And the income of that land was there to support her if her new spouse died before she did, which was quite common. And the amounts of the dowry and the jointure tended to be adjusted up or down, depending on the specific aims and social status of the parties involved. So if a bride was a lot higher status than her groom, the groom's family might offer a higher jointure and she might bring less dowry because her status is sort of part of the contract, part of what they're getting. Um, but that doesn't mean that women had no say um, they do seem to have known that it wasn't a good idea to try and force two people together if they hated each other. But that relies on them knowing each other at all before marriage, which might not necessarily be the case. Um, and I think we quite often see it as oppositional, like women being told what to do by mean families who don't care if she's happy. But usually the things that your family wanted for you as a woman, things like financial security and status, other things that the woman wants for herself, because they're the biggest things that will make her future life worth living. Um, people didn't really expect romantic love in the way that we do now. Mr. Wright did not exist in the same way. And again, that's not to say it didn't happen. Love matches were a thing. 
it was more common for elite women for that to happen with a subsequent marriage, not your first marriage, because the second time round, you are more free to follow your own inclination. So there is a bit of a trend in the middle of the 16th century for noble women to marry downwards a second time. That's an interesting perspective. I guess that makes sense if you if you think about, you know, the royal women or the elite women that we that we can think of. Um, that does make sense. So going back a little bit to, I guess, not necessarily the fashion, but um, their everyday kind of care uh, and hygiene. This comes up in almost every conversation because people always want to know about baths and and if they smelled bad and how they cared for all the little things that we do now that just didn't cross their minds back then. But how did, how did women at this time care for their bodies, their hair? Um, we got a few questions, of course, about that time of the month. What did, what did that kind of thing look like each day for a woman during the Tudor times? Sure. I got into this recently, actually, for something I was writing, and it's, it is super interesting. So beauty standards for white women were broadly similar, no matter where you were in Western Europe. Um, and they didn't leave a whole lot of room for maneuver. So the ideal body for a woman was what we might call pervy. Um, one of the most widely disseminated beauty texts in the 16th century said that hips should be shapely, your chest should be broad with moderate sized and firm breasts, stomach a little rounded, arms fleshy, thighs and buttocks ample, legs and arms should be long but not disproportionately so, the spine straight, the neck long, eyes should shine, hair should be long and preferably blonde and skin white. So it's quite specific. But no pressure, ladies. My goodness. Oh my God, I know. Yeah, it's insane. And women walked that same impossible tightrope then as we do now. So um, various texts make it clear, you know, women are supposed to take great care of their appearance while appearing to have taken none at all. And while there are some texts that are designed to help women appear beautiful, there are other texts that are clearly worried that cosmetics are being used to catfish, so to fool men into believing a woman was more beautiful than in fact she was. Um, well, on the same the same time, keeping yourself beautiful for your husband was considered a necessary and even a praiseworthy aim because it might stop him committing adultery. So it's all very, you know, on the one hand, but on the other hand. But then again, they can't really quite decide what they'd like women to do. It's all really entwined with ideas about health and fertility as well. So, again, going back to that humoral theory, body being made up of four humours linked to the four elements and to states of hot and cold and wet and dry. Those are then connected to biological sex. Women are cold and wet, so they're prone to emotional dysregulation. Um, and for any body to be healthy, the humours needed to be kept balanced. So it was thought that you could see humoral imbalance in a person's appearance. So for women, skin that was too red, um, or blemished in any way might therefore indicate potential issues with fertility. So there was quite an important perceived medical purpose behind beauty routines as well. It does take a lot of skill to prepare some of these recipes, and that's often transmitted and used by women. So the kinds of things that they might have done would be prepare face washes, which could have been rose water or could have been something a little bit more complicated. And that's designed to cleanse, but also heal redness and blemishes and smoothen and whiten the skin. Um, and they might have done things to hair as well, applied to tinctures to make it soft, make it long. Um, and women, 
did bath actually pre-modern people were quite keen on on bathing there are a lot of depictions in manuscripts of women washing with ewers and basins or in tubs henry the eighth has a whole room dedicated to bathing in hampton court palace so the, the idea that they never bathed is a bit of an urban myth and when they did bathe they might do it in water that was treated with herbs and they might have used lye to wash the hair which is like ash um, and then once you have bathed they would dry and comb the hair, might add sweet smelling powder, make it shiny and make it smell nice. There were recipes to whiten teeth and sweeten breath. Um, and you might have done some hair removal as well. It's not quite clear whether that's as standard in England as it is in a lot of Southern Europe. Um, Catherine of Aragon might have done because she came from Spain and that's much more strongly influenced by uh, Islamic bathing practices coming from further east. Um, what it is usual in England is to arc your eyebrows into a really high arch and to remove hair on the hairline on the forehead to make the forehead look broader and taller. And they probably also removed armpit hair and leg hair and pubic hair. And exactly how they did that is still up for debate. So there might be some plucking involved, maybe a razor, and maybe some kind of chemical concoction like hair removal cream, but scarier. Um, to burn off the hair. There are recipes for that dating really far back. But the fact that there are also recipes to soothe skin that has been burned by chemical hair removal shows that it could be quite risky. You don't want to miss time. Last rinse. Isn't that interesting? I don't think that ever even, I don't even think that crossed my mind that, that women back then would, would try to remove their hair. And now that I'm thinking of it, I'm like, oh my God, could you imagine plucking out your body hair all over i know yeah yeah i mean that would be super time consuming as well so i would imagine that it's more likely they use um hair, other hair removal methods and lastly um we did get a few questions so i want to make sure that i that i ask you this as uncomfortable as it might be but the menstrual cycles how did you care for your body during that time um, that's a tricky one. It's actually quite hard to tell because it's not the kind of it's not the kind of thing for which material items survive. So we can't look and go, oh yeah, that's what they used. Most likely, they used some kind of menstrual kind of belt and then sort of rags to catch the blood. That's the most likely thing. Um, but these things that are made of probably linen um, don't survive well, so we don't actually have anything surviving. Um, but that is the most likely because they don't wear knickers. So there's nothing there's nothing else to kind of catch it, you know. So I think most likely that's what they're doing. Um, in terms of pain relief, again, raspberry leaf tea is a thing that you see. I don't know whether that worked or not. Um, and definitely there is recognition that the menstrual cycle could be tricky. So um, both Princesses Mary and Elizabeth are known to have had difficult times at that time of the month. Um, but in terms of how they understood it for fertility, they actually had it wrong. So they thought that the most fertile time was immediately after you had bled. I think that's right. Or have I got that the wrong way around? Um, essentially, they had it the opposite way around. So they thought that your least fertile time was actually your most fertile, so the middle of your cycle. Um, so when they're trying to use the rhythm method to conceive or not to conceive, they may have got that wrong. 
and found that tricky. So for, for the queens and, and any other women who are trying to get pregnant and and keep going with their families and things like that, they just were totally doing it wrong. Yeah, possibly. Very interesting. So before I let you go, I want to give you the floor now to talk about some of your books or where we can find some of your research. If any of our listeners want to get to know you better or your writing a little better or even your research. Sure. Um, I'm on Twitter at Nikki Clark 86. Uh, I tweet quite a lot. So anytime I, I put anything new out there, any podcast recordings, anything like that, it goes up there. Um, I have recorded and I do still record on um, quite a lot of podcasts. So this one um, and various others, the Tudor Travel Guide, things like that. So any of the ones that do the circuit, have a look there. Um, my first book that I wrote, I published with Oxford University Press in 2018, and that was about the women of the Howard family. So um, Queens Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, their female relatives, essentially, and what they were doing. And I wrote that because we knew what the men were doing. We didn't know what the women were doing. And there's this nice image, isn't there, of like Anne's family in particular, kind of all ranged around a really long table, with the Duke of Norfolk at the head, ordering family members around like pawns on a chessboard, as though it was as tidy as that, and as though all families work strategically together. Um, and sometimes they did, and sometimes they wanted you to think that they did. But I wanted to ask whether... It really looked like that when you looked at it from a female perspective. And my book asks that question and says, no, not always. Actually, the Howard women are continually doing things that they shouldn't have been doing. Um, so, yeah, that book is out, is around. You can probably get it through your local library. I would recommend that because it's as a, as a university press book. It's not the cheapest. Um, and what I'm doing at the moment is writing my second book. And this one will be much more widely available. So what I'm writing at the moment is a book called The Waiting Game, which is about the ladies-in-waiting who served the six wives of Henry VIII. It's in progress right now. Um, it's due for publication with Weidenfeld and Nicholson uh, in the summer next year, hopefully, and then it should appear in all bookshops near you. Well, we can't wait for that one, and we will definitely be having you back when that comes out because that's a whole other topic that we'd love to touch on. I think that's very interesting. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yeah, absolutely. So again, thank you to everybody listening to this week's episode. As always, we appreciate your support and hope you'll tune in again next time as we continue to ask our experts the pressing questions you all want answered. So if you love the Tudor's Dynasty podcast and you want to show even more support, please do consider becoming a patron where you'll not only receive the content we offer now, but extra insider research, information, prizes, and other exciting opportunities that are only offered by subscribing. Again, thank you so much, Dr. Nikki Clark. And until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.